0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard Al, and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My guest on today's show is Nadia S., whose personal story was published in 2001 in the fourth edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. She's the first AA member I've interviewed whose backstory can be read by anyone with a big book. Combined with today's interview, Nadia's story comes alive in many ways. Landing in Canada after the war, her childhood was a wretched time in her life, during which her mother was beaten by her stepfather, while Nadia was abused both verbally and physically. By the time she left home at 18, her escape was greatly aided by the excessive use of alcohol that, coincidentally, had helped her survive her teenage years. University and a law degree steered her into becoming an attorney, where her first years were spent in heart wrenching criminal cases before she moved into corporate governance law. As with many of the attorneys I've interviewed, heavy drinking quickly became part of her life. Like many other lawyers, Nadia was able to confine her drinking to non work hours. While she continued to function and even succeed in her legal career. But inevitably the effects of her blossoming alcoholism, including hangovers and declining performance at work, began to intrude upon her work life. After some half-hearted attempts at sobriety, Nadia rapidly descended into the darkness of despair, from which the faint beacon of Alcoholics Anonymous finally guided her towards the rooms. Thoroughly licked and ready to do the work, Nadia found AA in 1980 and immersed herself in all aspects of the program, including sponsoring other women and all manner of service work, both in Canada and around the world. Though Nadia's personal story is well told in the big book, it's the 21 years since that story was first printed that truly enhanced the tale of a life well-lived according to the principles of the Twelve Steps. It's a tale that runs the gamut from tragedy to triumph, replete with human foibles along the way. On the road of happy destiny, I'm grateful to walk alongside people from whom I've learned so much. Nadia is definitely one of those people. Whether you read her story in the big book before or after listening to this interview, I think you'll be doubly impacted by the power and grace in both stories. So, please enjoy the next hour and five minutes of this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my new friend and AA sister, Nadia S.
1: I'm Nadia. I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Nadia. I'm so glad that you were able to do this interview today uh, as we're doing it over Zoom and you're in Canada and I'm in uh, Texas. I reread your story in the big book uh last night i've read it you know a number of times before and going through the big book
1: there's an update on that story
0: Uh, for the next edition
1: uh well no i was just going to tell you about the little update on the story but on my story that's in the book there's an update on that
0: oh that's terrific
1: (laughs) well it's not it's not a good update why not the sober judge he didn't drink harvey oh he's such a doll i still miss him makes me cry Mm. And, you know, he knew my husbands, I knew his wives and all that. And and so we were good friends in the end. And I used to visit him. He lived in Toronto. He, uh, he was a lifelong smoker,
2: right? Mm-hmm.
1: So one day, I'm going downstairs, there's a, a shop, and I'm going down, and he's big guy, and he takes out $10, and he says, will you get me a pack of cigarettes? And I'm so stunned my mouth is hanging open because he's got oxygen throughout the the condo and he, he can barely walk. He walks, but not far. And I, I'm like this with my mouth open. And he says, because if you won't go down, I'll have to go down myself. Mm. So I take it without saying anything. I go downstairs and I said uh, to the guy, This is for Mr. I'm supposed to get a pack of whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, I know. He come down. He was a Chinese guy. He says, he come down sometime for two. And I say to him, maybe you buy one. And he buy two. So anyway, I said to Harvey one day uh, after he'd been doing this for a while. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, Harvey, you may not drink, but you are an addict just like the rest of us, and he looked me right in the eye and said, I know, and so he finally went from respiratory failure, I guess, I, he just, because I used to go up regularly, and we'd go and dine, and go to the theater, and do all this stuff, he's in Toronto, I'm in Ottawa, and uh, then I got the call,
0: you know. The sad, sad part of that tale is it's all too common, especially in, in AA, because we're often cross-addicted, although it always seems like the cigarettes were the lesser of two evils when we were active alcoholics, but then to continue them after we get sober is an entirely uh, different story. Tell me, how how long have you been sober now?
1: Well, I guess it's coming up to 42 years. It was uh... August the 1st 1980 Mm -hmm. the exact hour is between the hour of six and eight Mm o'clock when you know it was like getting a bonk on the head because I couldn't get sober before that I went in and out I don't know how many months that time Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so yeah so that's going to be 42 years
0: Congratulations on that. That's absolutely amazing. So what I'd like to suggest to those folks who are listening is if you'd like to get the backstory a little bit to Nadia's um, experience, strength and hope, you can go to the Perpetual Quest in the fourth edition. And how long were you sober when you wrote that, uh, that story? Uh,
1: it was 98. 98- So that would be, what, uh, 24 years ago?
0: You were sober 18 years when you wrote that.
1: Yeah, I was off to Ukraine to work in a post-privatization corporate governance project for the World Bank. And there was no time. And, you know, as a lawyer, you do multiple drafts of everything. But that particular story, I often say I didn't write it. It wrote itself. It was like I dashed it off. And then I printed it, and I made some fixes, and that was it, and I sent it. It is amazing. The, the AA stuff writes itself.
0: Yeah, it it does, doesn't it? And I find that to be the case when I'm doing the introductions to these podcasts, uh, that it, it just has a tendency to flow, I think, because we're so connected at the heart that it makes a, it makes a huge yeah. difference. Interestingly, Nadia, yesterday when I told a friend of mine that I was going to be doing this today— he said, yeah, I remember that story, Howard. I said, yeah, what do you remember about it? He said, I remember she said something about going to the psychiatrist three times a week. <laughs> he said three times a week to a psychiatrist, no less.
1: Oh, it was awful. It was, and you know what? I have a little story there, too, because my psychiatrist was up the street from a great gay friend I had. Okay. He was one of these cultured maitre d' types, you know, Uh and I used to leave the shrink, go over to his place, drink all his scotch, pass out. He'd put me to bed and I'd say, just what a cultured, you know, elegant gay guy needs is a drunk woman in his bed. (laughs)
0: That's great. So this is prior to getting sober, right? This is uh, oh yeah,
2: oh yeah. Y-
0: you know what's interesting and and kind of um, reminds me a little bit of when I was seeing a psychologist before I got sober. He never really brought up the fact that I was drinking or using drugs, but he really concentrated on the fact that if we could just get to the bottom of my psyche, that we would find the reason why I drank or used drugs, and maybe that would be the, the solve my problem, and. It never did. He never once suggested to me that I stop. Did you find what what were your psychiatrists telling you at that time?
1: Oh, God, all kinds of stuff. I don't think we dealt so much with drinking because I I didn't admit how much I drank. Hmm. You know, if we talked about it, it was minimal.
0: Yet it was a big problem in your life at that time, wasn't it?
1: No kidding. Oh, was it ever?
0: How could he not notice that is my question.
1: Well, I think he knew, but I don't remember him mentioning AA. Mind you, I don't remember much. I know him and get this. I'm on LinkedIn and I, and because I'm a technocluss, I do very little on Facebook or LinkedIn or anything.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And um, my shrink connected to me on LinkedIn. He's he's oh, He must be retired now. We both are. But, uh, I don't remember talking much about that. And I certainly don't remember talking about AA. But he would have known, I would have told him that I went to AA when I was 21 the first time.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And that was when there were no young people. And it was my first day of law school. I got first week of law school. I got so terrified because today it's over 50% women. In those days, there were hardly any women. There were nine of us in a class of 240. And I was the only one in my section. It was terrifying. And so what did I do? I went on a binge, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I came back, Professor Linden said to me, have you been sick? And I said, sort of. And then I knuckled down to study. The same prof at Christmas held up my test paper. And these are his exact words, shows you what how we reviewed then." This little girl, she identified the issues. She wrote this up. She identified this, blah, blah, blah. This little girl. Okay. So after I did that paper, you see, I was fine. I could drink. Okay.
0: I get it. So doing such an excellent job on that paper, no one who's an alcoholic could possibly do that. Ergo did not have a problem.
1: That's right. So then I think there are two factors between then when I was still drinking and when I get sober was the fact that, well, first of all, grace, which is an unearned gift. Yeah. There's that. And I was, I became a good stopper and starter. Every time it got important, I stopped and I would study and I would do, and then, you know, we would do the tests or whatever, and then I'd start again. So I was a good stopper and starter for a long time because between that time in, uh, When I went to AA when I was 21 and somebody actually pinched my cheek and said, oh, um, isn't she nice and young and fresh? Uh, And when I got sober 13 years later, there was a lot of stopping and starting and a lot of grace.
0: You know, what's interesting, Nadia, is that out of all of the interviews I've done, I think attorneys are the most represented cross-section of alcoholics. I think I've interviewed 11 of them. And what's interesting is that a number of them have that same kind of story about they were able to stop or at least reduce greatly their drinking during law school and maybe in the first number of years of their careers, but then things shifted and and alcohol got to be a problem on down the road. I've asked this of some of the attorneys I've interviewed previously, and that is what is there about the legal profession? What is there about being a lawyer that makes alcoholism so prevalent?
2: Oh,
1: well, uh, first of all, I'll tell you that our Canadian Bar Insurance Association tells us statistically Mm -hmm. lawyers have three times the rate of alcoholism, six times the suicide rate. Everybody in my story is dead and one of my classmates committed suicide. Mm. Okay now what i've noticed and this isn't true 100 percent, but a lot i'd say a majority maybe almost most lawyers in AA are criminal lawyers and i started out in criminal law and boy could i tell you stories mm-hmm. and i i escaped to bay street which is like your wall street and I specialize in corporate governance. But criminal law is not easy. And I could—I remember very vividly all the stories I have there. Like one time the guy was articling for, uh, was yelling at me because he ended up in court with some guy who hadn't given me all the facts. So I go, you know, because I go interview. They send me off to interview these guys. I come back write it up and uh, he said what's the matter with you this guy thought you were my secretary can't he even make it clear who the hell you are he didn't want to tell the facts and in those days of course the cases weren't like now everything sexual assault no no it was rape, buggery you know very very detailed and i would go in to interview these guys and uh, so this this one guy didn't want to tell me so then i had a speech and I'd go in, and, and I can remember being in interview rooms in the Don jail where you could touch the walls with your arms on each side. And mm-hmm. some gorilla charged with buggery on, you know, teenagers something, comes in, and I look up at him, and I, I'd have this speech, and I'd say, look, I'm here to take down the facts, and if you can't tell me the facts, You better say so now, because if you end up in court with Mr. Kahn, there is going to be big trouble. And the gorilla said, yes, ma'am, sat down, told me everything. (laughs) And then I went to the office and wrote it up. And the secretary typed it as it was in those days. And then I went home and I drank. Wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. You know, it was weird. And as I say, I escaped to Bay Street because... All these lawyers used to drink after work, of course, and they all drank Mm -hmm. forever, and I ended up doing that too. But they drank with the um, president of one of the big bank mortgage companies, and he wasn't an alcoholic. He drank with these lawyers, and then he'd go home. But because he was there and I got to know him, he was the one that gave me a project to do and, of course, it was big bank, big name, right? So that gave me the entry to other corporate governance jobs, and I flew by the seat of my pants and I learned.
0: Mm-hmm. Do, do you think you'd still be here if you had stayed in criminal law, or would you have ever gotten sober, you think?
1: I don't know. It's pretty horrible uh, for anybody, and I guess some of these guys get inured. For me, I, yeah, no, I don't think I've, I would have... State. It was just too
0: terrifying. Yeah, I've I've heard that from so many different attorneys who I've known over the years. Let me kind of shift gears for just a second here. In the story that you tell in the fourth edition on uh what is it? Page 388. You talk about your childhood, but I think you only give maybe one paragraph to what was going on beto- between the time you were four and 18. And I think from the, the section right before, you mentioned about some difficulties with, uh, with a violent, uh, I guess, stepfather uh, at that time. I'm yeah. I'm wondering, um, could you go into a little bit about what there was in your childhood or adolescence that might have predicted your becoming an alcoholic later on, or you started drinking when you were 14. But so my question to most of my guests always is, what was going on in your life at that time that made drinking either attractive or necessary, or just the thing that you did.
1: Well, I was uh, playing, the reason I started at 14 was I was playing uh, piano in a Ukrainian dance band, and we used to play weddings and, you know, dances and all this stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, when, uh, when we finished, we'd go to Hull. Like, Ottawa was on the border between Ontario and Quebec, and in Quebec, the liquor laws and the drinking laws were always much more um, uh, liberal probably still are. Well, now it doesn't matter so much. Now it's hardly anything. But then it was a big deal in Ottawa. I think it was 21. And in Hull, it was 18. And I always got all dressed up to look older, of course, and nobody ever asked for ID or anything like that. (laughs) So we go over there and drink. And I, you know, sometimes the the guys in the band had to carry me home, practically. Mm. So... Uh, It started like that, but what happened uh, at home, uh, I grew up in this hotel, which is make a good sitcom of an immigrant hotel where everybody gathered. Mm. And my mother had been slave labor under the Nazis and arrived with me. I'm a product of post-war Nazi business.
0: Mm. She escaped the Nazis to to make it to Canada. Canada.
1: Well, she was slave-labored. She ended up in France, and that's where I was
0: born. In France.
1: Post-war. So um, a friend of hers from her village saw her name in a list of displaced people in a Ukrainian newspaper and brought her mm-hmm. and me, of course, to to Ottawa. And this woman who I call my auntie, she's a doll. She's Oh, she's 104 now. Oh, my goodness. But anyway, she... Um, what it costs a lot of money, of course, uh-huh. to bring people. So she got somebody who was going to marry my mother to pay for the plane, all right, and brought my mother to Iowa. Uh-huh. Well, when she got here, he really liked her, but he told her I had to go, okay. And she wouldn't dump me. So she ended up working there for two years as a chambermaid to pay for the ticket. She had to pay him. So she worked and so I grew up in this immigrant tavern, literally. And then she married another immigrant. Mm -hmm. And he was a POW way back. He had terrible things in his life. Well, he turned out to be violent. Mm -hmm. So When I moved away, and I think I say that in the story, I mean, I used to run away back to the hotel all the time. Mm -hmm. When I was 14, which coincided with my playing in the band and drinking, uh, one time Mm -hmm. was really bad. And I can actually see my stepfather was beating up my my mother. He actually broke her nose. Mm -hmm. And I ran downstairs, and I got on the phone, and I called the cops. And in those days, they did not charge spousal assault. But a couple of big, burly detectives came out, and I can still see myself. They took me outside, and I told them how awful he was and how he beat us up, because he used to beat me up, too. But this time, he particularly beat her up and it was really bad and so they put him up against the wall
2: mm-hmm.
1: and said buster if we ever hear anything about you we will be back and so then everything stopped there was no more hitting but of course he was like this all the time pacing 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 and that's how i grew up with these nerves and this thing and and he, and then he'd say to my mother hey Take your Gestapo. He called me Gestapo, which wasn't funny since she was slave labor under the Nazis. Oh,
0: that is that is tragic.
1: It's horrendous. It's horrendous. But you see how comforting drinking would be.
0: So the first time that you drank at fourteen, what was the feeling for you? Was it was it one of relief or release or escape?
1: I don't know really at the time because I think my earlier earliest drinking was with the band and we had more drinks than money, uh-huh. you know, guzzle and play and guzzle and play. That's all I did. It made me um, free to do anything. And that's why I could go over to Hull with the guys and dance and drink and think So yeah, and I got away from the violence and all the squirrels and stuff, though I didn't understand at the time. That I had squirrels in my head. You know, now for us, that's pretty common that, mm-hmm. you know, you have to calm everything down there. But at the time, I mean, I what did I know? I didn't know anything.
0: You left home at 18, you said?
1: Yeah, I went to the University of Toronto.
0: Okay, so when you were between 14 and 18, you were playing in the band. You were going over to Hull. You were drinking. You were, were feeling pretty good, I guess. What was it like having to go home from that? Did you suffer additionally because you were drinking when you went back home? Or or were we able to survive that situation easier because you had been drinking?
1: Well, at home, of course, it was wretched, but because it was like this all the time, you know? And it called me Gestapo. It was hard, but I don't, again, you see, I I block a lot out because I just carried on as best I can. you know. I go to school. My mother was fantastic. I didn't appreciate her enough when she was alive. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: she was quite extraordinary. Did
0: you leave because things got sufficiently bad enough that you got you had to get out of there?
1: Well, yeah, there's no question I chose you, University of Toronto and not University of Ottawa or something, is to get away from home. Yeah, which I did I felt I couldn't do in Ottawa and of course I didn't have any money. Though so I used to waitress and I used to be a car uh-huh. hop. I once lied. There was an A and W that had uh, cars pulling up in the you know, in the old days. It wasn't like a drive through they have now. They actually had car hops yeah. and I lied and got a social insurance card and said I was sixteen, I was only fourteen and I car hopped.
2: Oh, right? that's great. Yeah.
1: And that was when that was also when <laughs> I started to smoke because people used to give me cigarettes and I ended up eventually buying my own. And I have a smoking story about quitting smoking, if you want to hear it connected to AA. Yeah, I would. Well, first of all, I was going to quit in my first year. And my sponsor said, no, 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 just keep smoking. So I quit, and which was very wise because it was the hardest thing I ever did there was a program, a live program called Smoke Enders. This would have been in 1983. I remember that. We had a live meeting and you smoked for three weeks, I think, and then you took the day off and, you know, we're, we're nuts. We had a buddy system, but there was a guy in AA, Jack, God rest his soul. He's a painter and he has paintings in the Art Gallery of Ontario. Like he was famous, okay? Uh, he's a beautiful guy, and uh, I knew him from meetings. He thought this was great that I was putting smoking. And he said to me, okay, tell you what, whenever you want to smoke, he said, you call me, you can yell at me anytime. And so what used to happen is, of course, first thing, I'd get my coffee. This is, um, this is my third year. I'd get my coffee, and I'd call Jack he'd say, very good, don't smoke, don't drink, you'll be fine. And so I yelled at Jack for I don't know how long, months, months, every morning. And he he said, very good, very good, excellent. Yeah, he was great. You know what else about him? He was also the guy, you know, in all the stories of AA when they didn't let women in. Mm There was this group in the 1950s, and this woman came. The Al-Anon women mm-hmm. used to come to meetings and put on the coffee and wash the dishes mm-hmm. and do stuff in the kitchen. So what happened is they had this meeting, and this beautiful woman showed uh-huh. up. And the other guy said, go to the kitchen. And Jack said, no, she stays here, Okay. She stays here. So Maggie stayed in the group, and that's how she got sober. Uh-huh. And he married her. <laughs> and they were a beautiful couple, well known in Toronto, Jack and Maggie. That's marvelous. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a nice story, Jack.
0: That's a beautiful story. And the fact that he was willing to take on that kind of service, to have somebody call him every time they felt like they wanted a cigarette, given the number of cigarettes we smoke a day when we're active smokers. And what an extraordinary man he must have been. Oh, he was. So you went from home, you went to university in Toronto. You were this hard-drinking, hard-smoking musician going to the university. What were your plans as you went in?
1: Well, I ended up, I was studying, well, if you call what I did studying, I used to think everybody was so smart and intelligent, sophisticated, Uh Till I figured out that all I had to do was read what I was supposed to read, and I could be just as smart. Like, I Hmm. didn't know that what they were spouting was because they'd done (laughs) the homework. Russian and French, language and literature. Are you
0: fluent in both?
1: Yes, in French, but Russian, I don't speak... Russian, I speak Ukrainian, and we have, you know know what franglais is? No. Franglais is a mix of French and English. Okay. Well, I speak surzik, and what the surzik is, and I have Russian friends. They laugh at me. Surzik is a mix of Ukrainian and Russian. I
0: see. Uh Uh-huh.
1: So, I speak surzik. I speak Ukrainian and, and Russian, theoretically. Okay theoretically I can get by in Russian when I'm there for a while you know like with everything it picks up so what what people were doing is they take your third year in France right and so theoretically i was supposed to be doing French and Russian yeah. I didn't get into the formal group that was chosen to go I went on my own mm. and I ended up at the University of Fresno hmm. you know where the Olympics were one year much later and I was drunk the entire time. I was so frightened. And as you say, you were supposed to be studying French and Russian. I was studying bars and boys. (laughs) And I was very, very fortunate that I got out of there because I got in with a very bad bunch.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, one of the things I still remember, I don't know if I ever wrote this up, that on my, oh, I've had discussions with, I used to hang out there with an American and another Canadian. That's right. And they told me what happened. We were at a bar on my 21st birthday and I fell off the bar stool, except I was so drunk, I didn't fall. I literally folded my way down the bar stool. And when I came to, you know, I was, you know, so it it was pretty bad. Uh, And I came home uh, on a ship, which in those days was still a means of traveling to Europe, not a cruise. And I remember being told the bartender would say to me, maybe you better go and dress for dinner now. okay?" And I remember going up where they told us not to go, they would say, you can't go up on Mm -hmm. the deck now because things were really bad up there and everything was locked down and there were big waves and everything. And I would go up there and I remember rocking on the boat. And I don't know if I contemplated jumping or what. I think I did. Mm -hmm. And I remember rocking. So I survived all kinds of horrible stuff there and you know I'm still was in touch with those two women one's in Spain and the other one's in California the the um the uh, Canadian married a French guy and they lived in Spain and then uh, my other friend is in California, and I can still reach her by email.
0: Oh, that's wonderful to have that kind of history and being able to keep those people as friends for so long. Now, were you a uh, blackout drinker, or did you remember what you did the next day?
1: Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. I think it was almost worse when I did because it was pretty sad. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I used to do is I'd drink after work, and by that time, I was working on Bay Street, and I always got up in the morning and, you know, showered and put on clean clothes and all that, and then would go to work. But I could smell the scotch coming out of my pores, literally, uh-huh. you know, you shouldn't come near me. And as I say, sometimes I remembered, sometimes I didn't. Um, by that time, I had, I had married another law student, but we were divorced. Uh-huh because women deteriorate uh, much more quickly.
0: This is while you were on Bay Street.
1: Yeah, and I was a funny drunk, and then I turned into a bad drunk. And so my husband, we had married in law school, Mm -hmm. dumped me.
0: After how long? Uh,
1: Six years. So he
0: put up with you for six years. Were you getting progressively worse over that time, or were you about the same all the way through?
1: I don't know, I must have been getting worse. And and we did reconnect later because, oh, we had a lawyer's group there. They were all criminal uh-huh. lawyers except me. And he started to get into real trouble. And I'm on Bay Street, but I'm still talking to these guys. And we would meet. You know, I'd still meet them. Uh-huh. They told me that the judges were starting to notice he'd show up in court in pretty bad shape. And they gave me permission to let him know they were in AA. So I would deal with him as best I could. In fact, we talked a lot more after we were divorced than than, uh, when I was drinking. But what happened is, in the end, he died on his so-called last drunk when I was 10 years sober. And his wife insisted on telling me all about it. Uh He had a son. He left, I think, a 12-year-old son. I had tried to get him into AA and he went kind of in and out and in and out. And his wife said that that particular night he had gone to the cottage or that weekend he'd gone to the cottage. Normally you would have his son, he'd have to come home Sunday night so the kid could go to school. Mm-hmm. But he was alone, so he phoned home and said he was coming home tomorrow and he'd go to AA again, again. And so I tell people, you think you can drink and then come back? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Because she said that night the cottage burnt down, there were bottles in the woodpile, there were bottles in the rubble, there were bottles in the car, mm. everywhere. And he was there with some other drunk that she didn't even know. Oh, and he used to say the cops had the best drugs. Oh, no. And I say the cops kill them because we didn't do drugs and we were married i kept us off drugs because in those days you couldn't get called to the bar if you even had a conviction for possession of of hash yeah anything
0: you could drink all you want but no drugs right
1: no drugs we didn't do drugs and we lived in yorkville which was like hippie land you know and drugs everywhere pot plants out back Uh And here he was. The cops had the best drugs. And I've heard cops. I've told them that. And they say, yeah, it's true. They do. And they killed him. And you couldn't get into his funeral for the cops. Jesus. Because by that time, he was the crown attorney, which is like your prosecutors. And the cops, uh, yeah, you couldn't get into his funeral. So that's my cop story. So you
0: were 10 years sober. So during that demise, he was just getting worse and worse with the alcohol and then eventually with the drugs that he
1: got from the cops.
0: What a tragic way to end, though. Uh,
1: it still makes me cry.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. it's. It yeah. sounds like a, a very painful, painful mm-hmm. memory. But I bet when you look at that, Nadia, you it, it gives you that little shot of thankfulness and gratitude that you were able to survive. And that that could have been you who had been his wife when he did that, right?
1: Yeah yeah
0: yeah let's fast forward a little bit here because a lot of a lot of this is in your written story but you get to aa what were the days like just prior to you getting into the program i mean i'm assuming that you were on some kind of downhill trajectory can you give me a glimpse of what that looked like
1: yeah it was pretty bad it got so that i didn't do anything except drink and work and um Mm. The drinking was outstripping the working, as I say.
0: Was that while you were working, or was that you work during the day and get drunk at night?
1: Yeah, no, i I drink at night. And, oh, um, I worked for investment bankers. Uh Whenever we got a big new client, like the government of Saudi Arabia or something, we would have a celebration. And I complained about the quality of the champagne. (laughs) So the vice president said, you tell them what to buy, Okay. (laughs) So I did. I used to tell them what to buy and all uh-huh. that. Eventually I stopped drinking anywhere. I just drank at home. Uh I worked and I drank at home because it got really bad. Or, you know, go to the bar after work and then mm-hmm. in the morning I'd get to work and as I say, I always got up and looked thing like I'd never skipped work because of it. Uh, Because of my hangovers. But the last day, what happened is I did drink at the celebration. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I was in the office early in the morning, like I was supposed to be. And the chairman would come in for these celebrations from Montreal, always. He came into my office holding some papers that he obviously wanted to discuss with
2: me. Mm -hmm.
1: And he took one look at me and he said... Oh, yeah. Right. And he turned on his heel and he left because that was how pathetic I looked. Like I couldn't Mm. hide how hungover I was. Mm. I used to get pretty good at it. I would refuse to sign documents. I'd say, just leave them, just leave them, you know, until I'd go out at lunch, get a Bloody Mary, and then I'd be better in the afternoon. But this particular time was really bad. So I ended up Uh, going out to lunch and having a cry with a friend of the friend who was in AA. And so she had told me quite some time ago that she had a friend in AA, but I didn't want to meet him. And this particular time, I said, okay, I'll phone him. And she said the magic words. I don't know if this is in my story. She said, perhaps he can call you. Yeah which was the key because I wouldn't have phoned him. I would have gone for a drink at 5 o'clock and I would have been fine. And he started to bother me. That's
0: what. In fact, I read that in your story, which is which is remarkable because so often when newcomers show up either to their first meeting or somewhere in their first days, the idea in uh, a lot of people's minds is, OK, they have to get ready. They have to be ready that you have to smash their ego enough for them to make that first call. But it occurs to me that what happened for you was that somebody saw the need to respond to your unwillingness to do it yourself.
1: And apparently John, he's passed, he had said that to her, get her phone number and permission for me to call because she won't call me. He had told her that.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast is produced by Howard L., who receives no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to The Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. Now, at this point, Nadia, what were you thinking in the final couple of months leading up to this about your own drinking? Did you acknowledge the fact that you had a problem? Were you, were you seeking any other help for it? <laughs> what did that look like?
1: Yeah, I did the controlled drinking. You remember that. That's a good failure uh, a long time beforehand. Um, I knew I was in trouble, I I think I knew all along I was in serious trouble. But once my work was threatened with, you know, the chairman coming in and catching me like that, I knew something had to give. And I was so fortunate that my friend Phyllis, who I still see sometimes in Toronto, Mm -hmm. said those And John had told her that, to say those magic words, perhaps he can call you.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: But I remember, and I lived, I was divorced, and I lived in this huge house. I bought a a three-story, four-bedroom house. It was ridiculous. used (laughs) to listen to the Larry King show all night. You know, it was in the old days. Larry King was on the radio forever Uh and, you know, pass out and wake up and, and in terrible state, and uh, yeah, I knew, I knew, but I didn't want to go to AA, and this God that really got me because I had been in the violence at home, and then I got dragged to church. So don't talk to me about God, okay?
0: Yeah, because he didn't help when you needed it.
1: That's right, and he lets little kids get beaten up, Yeah, right? But this is when I say in my talk, I to everybody, keep an open mind. Because if I had heard my story, I would have said, yeah, right, give me a break. Because what happened is I wasn't going to those stupid meetings anymore. I wasn't doing anything, blah, blah, blah. And there used to be a women's club, a very fancy women's club uh, in downtown Toronto that the guys all wanted to come to for lunch and drinks and stuff. <laughs> And I belong to this fancy club. Uh-huh. And so uh, on this particular day, Friday, August the 1st, before a long weekend, 1980, I dragged myself up Bay Street and I got to the club where I was going to swim. It was deserted because it was the Friday before a long weekend. I tried to swim and did it was not successful. I sat in the corner of the locker room in a bathrobe. Hmm. And then I leapt up at 7.30, jumped into my clothes, ran to the subway, and went to a meeting where everything had changed. But the reason I was on the subway was I used to drive drunk, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'm so fortunate. Talk about grace. Never hurt anybody. Never had an accident. I say I have all my accidents sober, okay? Uh Uh-huh. I used to drive drunk, and one time I came down off the Queen Elizabeth thing and, and into downtown Toronto, and the car died because I had not put oil in it. Oh, no. And when they told me how much it was going to cost, I abandoned the car. You know, to put a new engine, I needed a new engine. And so I didn't drive again. The guys at work used to try and get me to buy a Corvette. You could see a drunk in a Corvette, <laughs> and I had the money and everything, and I didn't buy a car till I was sober. And also you don't need a car in downtown Toronto. So on the day I got sober, when I jumped up, ran to the subway Mm -hmm. and up to the group in Toronto, north of Yonge and St. Clair, and I had been there before and everything had changed. The first time I went to the meeting, this woman came up and said, we have this, have you got $5? We have this book. And I said, I'll give you the $5. I don't want your book, okay?
0: This is back when you were younger and you went to the AA before.
1: That's right. I didn't want it. So this time I bought Mm. the book. That was the third edition had just come out. And uh, I went to that meeting and I went for coffee with people and everything had changed. And I have no explanation for that other than somebody up there said, this one's never going to get it. Let's sober her up make her useful so i try to be useful
0: that is an astounding tale as far as getting sober for you to have that realization when you were folded up in the corner there in the athletic club what was running through your mind
1: i think i had hit the emotional bottom the absolute emotional bottom so it's like i just wanted to die or something and when I was drinking, I did try to commit suicide one time just by eating a whole bunch of junk, eating the stuff out of the medicine cabinet, the blah, 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 you know.
0: Obviously, you weren't successful at that. No, no. Hmm. The time you were up on the ship and thinking about going over the side, was that a throwback to that type of thinking or was it that you were just so hopeless at that point?
1: I think so. I think, yeah, it was. it was pretty pretty sad, pretty, uh, just, whew,
0: uh. So that would have been a turning point, a moment of clarity for you to get up, get dressed quickly, hop on the subway, go uptown, go into that meeting, buy the book. Did you get a sponsor right away or how did, how did that all work out for you?
1: Uh, well, I ended up, I was very fortunate because as I said, I worked on Base Street where there are all these TD, all these banks and everything. And oh, yeah. The stock exchange had moved, they had built a new building and the guys at the stock exchange, um, somebody on the bank board gave them a space in the bank staff cafeteria. There were no signs or anything, but when I came out of my, you know, corporate governance upstairs and down through the subway you had to know it was there was there was no sign and it was the bank staff cafeteria and you had to you just went in there and so there was a 515 group and I'm still in touch with one of those brokers he's 10 years longer sober than me Jim in fact, I got a column in May. They started that meeting at 5.15 because they didn't want to wait till 8 o'clock. And in those days, after the stock exchange closed at 3 or 3.30, they had these papers to do. So they made it for 5.15. Uh-huh. And that was really lucky for me that I went down there.
0: So did you do that every day after work? Was that your after-work routine?
1: It was only once a week. But there were a group of lawyers there. We had a lawyer's group in Toronto at that time. They used to meet in each other's offices Uh and they got a hold of me. That's what happened. They used to go to the 515 and then they'd have their own meeting or they'd go to another meeting. And what happened is they physically dragged me around. Like they'd say, come on, we're going to another meeting. We'd get a sandwich and we'd go to another meeting. And one time at the 515, John said, ask that woman to be your sponsor. (laughs) And that's how I got my first sponsor.
0: That is great. Did she say yes immediately? Yeah,
1: she did. Yeah.
0: So she took you through the steps?
1: No. I'm trying to remember how I first started doing the steps. I was doing, oh, I know, at a conference. It was an Uh A conference. Somebody said, all the instructions are in the book. And I said, where? Where?
2: What? What? Mm -hmm.
1: And if you go to... Those pages where it's after uh-huh. step three, and he was quite right. And I, I know now, I have a step study now that follows along that line, going uh-huh. sentence by sentence, not not just that silly chart. That's not enough. Yes. But the sentence by sentence. And I remember writing for hours and getting a headache. I have migraines. And that's how I did it. And this step study I have, which is more formal, follows that. And so I did that, and um, the funny thing is that I didn't ask my sponsor for the step five. I asked another older woman, Mm -hmm. and I told her about my horrors in France. And this is classic Mm -hmm. AA coincidence, right? God incidents. Turned out she had been a student in France, too, and she almost died of anorexia at that age. And... (laughs) And I didn't know anything about her background. So that was my first step five. Oh, that's beautiful. She was amazing. Yeah. When I was seven years sober, I got a job mm-hmm. from Toronto. Ooh, I did workaholism. We won't go there. But what happened is I was new. There was, it was a brand new building. There were 300 people there. I didn't know uh-huh. anybody. And I was in a little enclave, like there was, Mm -hmm. I was the corporate secretary and general counsel. So there Mm -hmm. was the chairman's office on one side, no, the president's office when he came in uh, beside me and the CEO down the way. So he had to come into this enclave. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting in my office one day and my sponsor's daughter phones me from Toronto And my sponsor had celebrated 10 years while I was still in Toronto. And my sponsor's daughter tells me that she found her mother drunk at the bottom of the stairs. Oh, no. And I'm sitting there sobbing by myself. The door closed. There's a knock at my door. The door opens and this woman's face appears. And I didn't know her and she didn't know me. Mm -hmm. And she said... She, she just, the face. I said, are you a friend of Bill Wilson's? And she said, yes, and came in. And she says to this day, and she's 50 something years old, or 57, something like that. Uh-huh. To this day, she says she has no clue what she was doing in that part of the office. It wasn't like you just had to walk by and why she knocked on my door. It's extraordinary. So she came in and hugged me and we've
0: been friends ever since. What a beautiful God moment that must have been especially looking back because when you're right in the middle of it it doesn't dawn on you but uh, that's beautiful. You know you just you very briefly mentioned something I wanted to ask you about Nadia and that was a number of my friends over the years who've gotten sober have found some new uh, addictions and one of those is and especially some of the, the the attorneys I've known, they found the addiction shows up as workaholism along the way. And, you know, that's one of the few addictions that you can have where society can look at you and see how successful and productive and everything else you are. So how could you possibly be an addict and how does that play out? But the people I've known in Workaholics Anonymous have, have straightened me out on that. I was just curious, how how did that factor in and how did you deal with that using your AA program or were you involved in other methods to deal with that?
1: That's sort of like my worst regret of my life because I missed my daughters growing up. Mm. Uh, I had moved back to Ottawa because I had my daughter. Another mm. AA member and I got together
2: mm-hmm. to, and
1: we, and I got pregnant and I moved back mm-hmm. to Ottawa be around my, so my daughter could be around my my family. Mm-hmm. And I uh, say I got this job. First, I thought I died and went to heaven, because it wasn't Bay yeah. Street, and I was going to do, you know, all this interesting stuff. Sure, uh, But the job took everything over. And it's the worst time of my life in sobriety, because I missed my daughters growing up. Mm. Now, fortunately, my husband looked after her. she was He was supposed to stay home with her a little bit and then go back to work. And you know what? He never went back to work. Mm-hmm. So she's daddy's girl and mummy the witch. And my daughter turns hot and cold and hot and cold. Like I probably won't hear from her this Mother's Day, but I have another Mother's Day. She walks in with, you know, flowers and non-gluten muffins and God knows what. But
2: yeah.
1: uh, I I I have bets that I'm not going to hear from her this Mother's Day because I was nuts. I was crazier than I had been when I was drinking. That was the trouble because I'd be so tense all day working and I'd come home, the kid would say one thing and she'd get the verbal barrage, you know, and I mean, it didn't hit her or anything. Sure. But most of the time it was simply that, I didn't make it home, and when I did, I was so tense, yeah, that the kid would say one thing and she'd get a verbal barrage from me, okay,
0: yeah, that's right
1: for no reason, just no reason, yeah. and you'd think that would be easy to control, it wasn't, and that was almost yeah. worse than the drinking, you know,
0: I'll bet. I'm curious, uh, just from your perspective, we know what insanity looks like when we're drinking, and yet when that same kind of insanity shows up around other behaviors, we're strangely sometimes blind to it. As you were watching your own behavior during the times at which you were, let's say, working addictively, did you ever kind of put the two together? Uh, Did you ever take a look at what was going on in that regard through the lens of your AA program?
1: Well, there was another factor too, because I've worked Mm -hmm. such long hours, didn't get enough sleep, and I've had lifelong migraines. Mm. Lifelong, like from age 14. And I always say that the migraines make you crazy, and the pain medication makes you crazier. When I speak, I always have the AA medication pamphlet Yeah, because there are fundamentalist idiots who say you shouldn't take medication. I'd like to give them one of my migraines, but <laughs> the migraine is bad, but the pain makes you crazy. And then the pain medication is horrendous. And all that combined can make you really, really nutty and Fortunately, after only 64 years, it's now waning just with age and stuff. But that pamphlet talks about, uh, in the first half, it talks about abuse of prescription drugs. Okay, so you have to be very careful. And every doctor of mine and dentist and everybody knows I'm an alcoholic. They know that, so they do their best. And I have a great neurologist. But the second half says... We're not doctors, some of us need medication. True. And I survived with that medication, but a lot of it was awful. And I've known, you name it, I've been there. Yeah. Uh, Ending with the Botox all over your head and in your temples. And the kind I have the neurologists call ice pick headaches, Just like an ice pick in your temple, a toothache an earache and a sledgehammer over your head and you can't pick your head up.
0: That's rough. I'm sorry to hear that you have to endure that,
1: yeah, so the, all those things complicate the thinking to put it mildly,
0: yeah
1: now i'm just I'm escaping from all of it now, but it's a little late,
0: <laughs> but the important thing is, Nadia, you do have the rest of your life to do that, so that's a. That's an interesting perspective in the midst of feeling like when the pain comes, it's going to come hard at you. I, I get that. I've had clinical depression most, if not all my life, but wasn't treated for it until I'd been sober two or three years. And there were those fundamentalists who said, oh no, yeah, don't take pills. Don't do this. Don't do that. Just, you know, sing a happy tune or because just like anybody who's ever had a headache thinks they understand migraines. Anybody who's ever had the blues thinks they know what clinical depression is.
1: That's right.
0: Those are sometimes the worst people to take advice from.
2: Oh, it's awful.
0: So uh, I I get what you're talking about. And my guess is when you share about that, there are probably people who come up to you afterwards who say, thank you. I'm so glad you brought that up because I've been afraid to do it in meetings.
1: Oh, yeah. I take that medication pamphlet with me when, when, you know, it's live and I'm speaking. And I do mention it. uh, Because for some idiot to tell me I couldn't have medication... On the other hand, there are such horrible consequences from some of that stuff. But what can you do? You do your best.
0: Yeah. Well, to just shift gears in the final minutes, uh, Nadia, I wanted to, uh, you've been sober a long time, and obviously a lot can happen over 42 years. You told me about some of the things that, that still occurred, such as the headaches and such as the, you know, the the realization about relationships and other things like that. But as you look back over the past 42 years, have there, can you identify a few milestones for me, either times that the program pulled you out of the abyss or, you know, they were times sublime that you could look back and say, wow, if I hadn't been sober, this never would have happened.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I know that my mother's prayers, I used to come across my mother on her knees in the morning sometimes my mother's prayers saved me a lot of times mm. when i was almost dying in france she said later she dreamt that i was running around in the snow in my bare feet mm. one of the, the things that i've been to AA all over the world when i travel i don't understand people who when mm-hmm. they travel wouldn't try and go to an AA meeting and in the old days you know you used to have to call new york to get a phone number Right before internet and all that. Yeah. But that's been my thing. Yeah. So I've been, you know, all through Ukraine and Russia and Cairo.
0: Didn't you help to get some of the stories translated into Ukrainian?
1: Yeah, I did that. I did that for my girls, uh, and that was where I started the women's meeting. Mm-hmm. And you read that story, that grapevine story. And you see today, the elephant in the in my room is the war in Ukraine. Yeah and i couldn't reach i couldn't reach anybody i reached a cousin of mine in western ukraine about a month ago and i haven't reached her since and finally i reached marina who's one of the women in the women's group in Kyiv. that's one of the highlights of my life starting that woman's group Mm -hmm. and what marina had been doing is cooking with a group for all the people that are in subways and places where they, they don't get any food. Mm-hmm. And that's why I couldn't reach her because she wasn't home. And she finally, after weeks of this, took a day off. And I caught her at home. And she said the women's group is no more because all the women have left. Yeah, Thank God they have. But she doesn't because she has a son and a grandson. And also she has that house outside of cave. And they're, they're they're staying there. Mm-hmm. So that women's group is one of the highlights of my life because they were so successful with so little, you know. And um
0: did you hear from any of those who fled the country?
1: No, I haven't. I haven't heard from anybody, but I'm sure they're very preoccupied. But thank goodness I reached Marina. That was about eight days ago, so I'll try and call her again. The other difficulty is those horror that maniac and he he, I I had an article I wrote a long time ago about how he fits the legal definition of insanity. Because I've worked on murder trials where they plead not guilty by reason of insanity and he has all of the the Mm. factors. And nobody wanted to publish it. I must yeah. dig it out and hope someone will publish it now. Prophetic. Uh, it's it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad.
0: Yeah, it's such a bad situation over there. We're fortunate in AA. On the one hand, we're kind of insulated from the outside world. We purposely do not engage in controversy and politics and and differences that we you know we focus on the commonality of being sober alcoholics been struggling with that but it's what we do with the program once we're outside of that insulated area that makes the biggest difference and what you're telling me about getting that meeting started in ukraine uh is just beautiful that especially in that part of the world where alcoholism is so so horrible i'm sure it made a big difference to a lot of women over the years
1: well, it was lovely getting to know those women. And it took so little, that's that's the astounding thing, that it took so little for them to change their lives entirely, you know? I mean, yeah. um, you know, I didn't, and I didn't know how poor some of them were, like Marina. Marina was the one who was living in one room with a mattress on the floor with her 13-year-old son. And then she acquires this house, like nobody has houses in cave. They're all apartments and she's just outside the city. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And that's where her son and grandson are now.
0: It's a tough situation over there right now. Um my grandmother was from Kiev and my grandfather and my dad's father were both from Lithuania. And so that whole eastern part of Europe is I mean, I've obviously got roots there. So whenever I see this kind of thing going on on the one hand, I wish that they could have what we have, yeah. where they could all get into one room and talk about what's really important in life, like we do in AA.
1: And the the other thing I have to mention with that, because speaking of Ukrainian stories, I had that grapevine story uh-huh. translated. And I have had several other stories translated. Do you remember when the old one was called Dr. Alcoholic Addict and they changed it to the Dr. Promotes or it says Acceptance?
0: Yeah, Dr. Paul.
1: They have that story. I had about six, seven stories translated. So they had that because they didn't have uh, the stories. They just had the text Mm. and the 12 and 12. So... So they have some extra stories. I picked some good ones and had them done. In fact, when I, a couple of times I sent someone Ukrainian translation of that creation of the women's group story by accident, people who can't read it. So,
0: Well, what a beautiful gesture to those people and allowing them to be a part of what we, we know intimately, but imagine the impact it has on them when they read that for the first time. It's, it's got to be just extraordinary. One or two last questions I wanted to ask you about, uh, Nadia, was obviously you've enjoyed great notoriety, let's say, uh, over the years uh, as a result of that story and people who know that you wrote it. Um, You know
1: how that happened first? I didn't tell anybody I wrote that story for four years. uh Okay? I didn't tell a soul. Hmm. And what happened finally is I was giving a talk And one of my own sponsees came up to me afterwards and said, your story's in the book. And so I knew nobody reads the book. (laughs) Because every time, I mean, the story's unmistakable. It is. It is. Okay. So what I started to do then is when you get a newcomer, if I'm giving them a book or signing their book or something, I point them to the story. Uh. And then they come and say, oh, I read a whole bunch of stories. And, you know, so that's when I started. Other than that, when nobody knew, nobody reads the book. Isn't
0: that amazing? Nobody reads the (laughs) stories.
1: So, well, now it's an open secret in Ottawa.
0: One of the things you wrote at the end of your story was that it couldn't get much better. And I wondered, how much better has it gotten since the point at which you wrote that?
1: Oh, my. Well, since I wrote that, that's, that's, to say, everything... After that, like my more travels, my daughter growing up in Ukraine a little bit, so she used to go to Saturday Ukrainian school, and then when she was there, she got quite fluent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Things like that. Just generally, just generally when I think of all the women I've had contact with,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that I love to deal with. and I have to say with that, that there's also the the funerals of young people, especially these days oh, yeah. with drugs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have horrendous stories about that. Yeah. But I do tell them, you know, most people don't stay in AA. Right. And a lot of them die. Yeah. And then I have the loners thing. You know, people who don't do email or their internet is unstable. Mm-hmm. I, I have a card from Slovian, uh-huh. someplace like that near there. And that's from the um, Loners International.
0: Yeah, they've been around a while, haven't they?
1: Yeah, I started doing that right at the beginning.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I still get lovely mail. Like I have I think I have three or four letters now. Well, that Slovyansk one is really something wow. I have to, oh, and it's, you know what? It's a priest, because it's father somebody or other. I had it right here, I don't know where it is. Uh-huh. Yeah, priest, and that was the other thing. This is real irony that, you know, I was so upset about the God bit initially, and it turned out that one of my greatest supporters who helped me was a bazillion father In Toronto who was an English professor and he helped me so much in fact I relied on him so often that he finally gave me an appointment a weekly appointment at the University of Toronto in his office so I could come and talk to him especially when I was a 39 year old pregnant hysterical woman (laughs) 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 <laughs> I was hysterical, and he saved my skin, Bernie, and I have a picture of him in my meditation book. Oh, that's
0: beautiful. He
1: died a long time ago, and then when he died, his friend, uh nun, uh-huh. took my family over and my daughter and so on. So. And she was a professor, too. So I had these wonderful professors in my life.
0: Who kept you spiritually aligned, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. That is a beautiful story. Is there anything else that you want to say before we wrap up? Anything of note that you'd you'd like anybody who's listening to know?
1: Just to never give up Mm -hmm. for yourself or for anybody.
0: Sounds to me like you've embodied that spirit all along, Nadia, and and this has been a terrific honor and and pleasure for me to be able to interview you today for the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. We've never met, but I love you, and I know that you're a sister in sobriety and somebody who's just delightful and and, uh, a beautiful soul, and I want to thank you for doing this today.
1: Well, thank you. And I now will follow along and listen to more of your stories.
0: God bless. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Nadia S., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to any or all of my other interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.